Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. I hope that you are doing well. I've got a pretty great conversation ahead of us for the next hour or so. And today I am joined by Jeremy Carl, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked as the Assistant Deputy Secretary of the Interior for the Trump Administration? Deputy Assistant Secretary of the uh, Interior. (laughs) There probably was an Assistant Deputy Secretary as well. Uh, I oversaw the uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and uh, the National Park Service. Well, my my father works for Fish and Wildlife, so I'm sure he's uh, okay. very. I'm sure he loved your work. <laughs> well, we tried, we tried. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, for those of uh, the audience who may not know you, outside of the few titles that we've just introduced, if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you currently do. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and I have sort of an eclectic uh, series, sort of an unusually eclectic for a policy guy uh, sort of set of portfolios. I've done a lot of my formal training and graduate training in environment and energy and resource policy, which is what I was doing uh, in the administration. But I have a lot of um, uh, separate interests in some of these culture and culture war issues that we were just talking about before the show. And, um, you know, things like also uh, looking at uh, racial politics and immigration. And I'm actually working on a book on that that latter subject right now for Regnery. Um, but, you know, I just write about I write about politics, but also want us to focus a little more seriously than we sometimes do about policy. And it was that sort of discussion that we were having that uh, led to the conversation today. Yeah. So, you know, as we were saying before we went live and how we got this conversation started to, to stream about it was that, you know, I, I think my Twitter feed and I'm coming at it from sort of a, a commentary analyst, you know, columnist kind of character. I, I've always said that there's this commentariat class when it mm-hmm. comes to, say, right wing Twitter or just looking at the culture war in general. And there's sort of, I don't think, outside of maybe five or ten accounts that I follow, and that may be purview on my part, right, that there isn't a lot of attention being focused on what kind of policies should be proposed or, you know, what part of, you know, the the federal register that we should be looking at to take a look at what are some of the structural issues of our problems. Because, yes, there's power and ideology, but there's also that legalistic superstructure that we don't usually the average person doesn't know enough about. And so I, I how and we were talking about this before we went live is, is that I think for a lot of people that either write or do commentary and things like I do is they engage in what I call homeopathic politics. They'll take a little nugget of policy or ideas and they'll put it into a slogan or, or a meme or a tweet. And they think that that represents, I think, a, a solid form of policy when it, it really doesn't. And so you know, there was a point in time where like you had the, the culture idealizing it, and that sort of very West Wing-esque kind of view of, you know, policy wonks. And nowadays it very much is, you know, those 2016 style protests of people just yelling at each other. Yeah. And it, it begs the question or raises the question, um, where did all the policy wonks go? Where, where did we start no longer paying attention to the law and focused more on, say, you know, on the yeah. ground, the culture and things like that? Yeah, well, and I think it's been a, it's a long time um, flaw that we've had in the conservative movement, and it's sort of interesting to explore why. And I would add that this doesn't just kind of come to the, you know, when you talk about commentary, I have the interesting experience, again, we were talking before the show, uh, I did a viral thread on Zoe Zephyr that uh, maybe some of your uh, listeners uh, are familiar with this week that did, uh, you know, 2 million views on the thread and, and hundreds of thousands of reads of the article. I read a lot of commentary pieces they don't get a fraction of that audience. Well, what was the difference and what was the tangible change is I did actual reporting with facts and data that was new that people didn't have. And that actually changed a real political debate that was happening about this uh, transgender identified person in the Montana legislature. Um, by analog, we have uh, this this same thing going on with, with um, commentary. It's, it's sort of, it's easy to have an opinion um, but when it comes down to the kind of nuts and bolts, and by the way, I would in no say, way say I'm the expert. I mean, as uh, I'm not a like, lifetime Washington denizen or anything like that, but uh, the nuts and bolts matter. It can't just be uh, feelings and memes and all that fun stuff, which is actually important. I mean, I would never denigrate the importance. I think in, in many ways that you have to start with that type of energy. That's always been kind of the argument for Trump. Uh, to me is that he does bring that type of energy, but you've also got to close and just sort of, um, you've actually got to do things in the federal register and other things. And kind of along those lines, having just mentioned Trump, uh, for my book research, I was just looking and 
on January 5th, 2021, you know, the day before the January 6th riots, uh, the Trump administration was pushing out this thing, hey, maybe we should get rid of disparate impact by executive order, which is a wonderful idea. Uh, it is an important thing that's a really toxic element of our civil rights establishment, but it's something that we needed to have teed up at the beginning of the administration where it could have really made a difference, not the end. And so, uh, you know, and we saw the same thing with Schedule F, a hugely, an awesome suggested reform, really important. And both Trump and DeSantis now have both really picked up on this, um, but something that was introduced at the very end of Trump's administration and not at the very beginning where it really needed to be. So, you know, like I know how a lot of people like to say real estate, real estate, real estate. I imagine in Washington or any sort of local government, the question is always personnel, personnel, personnel. And, you know, given your background, I mean, you've done way more governments and policy work than I've ever done. I mean, I've worked in the Texas GOP for some years. But uh, what comes to my mind is, is that what are sort of the avenues that people can take, say, besides going to law school or working in sort of the legal field in politics, where is it that we see conservatives getting their policy chops at? Is this just working in staffing? Are there institutes that help train people? Um, you know, because a lot of people, and I think it's been a really big disservice, is that a lot of people, I think, have been really turned off from electoral politics, especially post-2020, which I think is done more harm than good because there's still so much work to be done on the local level. And I mean, your, yeah. your thread, which I've linked in the, in the chat, you know, is a really good example of that. And so where are the places that people can go to maybe, you know, get, you know, wet in their blade or, or to lick their chops on, on learning how the law and the legislative process works? Well, there are some training institutions in, uh, in DC and uh, I'm actually, you know, involved in some of them. I'm going down in uh, in late June to kind of talk immigration policy to 50 conservative LAs in DC. I'm going to take a trip to DC. So there are some organizations that we have <laughs> that are doing that, and that's great. I would say there is no substitute for actually going into government, um, <clears throat> seeing how it works, being in LA, uh, working in the executive branch, working in. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I was just in the administration for a short time, but instantly I'd advised on even technical policy matters to lawmakers for many years, you know, on kind of idiosyncratic basis from the outside. But it's very different when you're actually in there and you really see how the sausage is made. You understand how real power is distributed in an organization. And that type of training is invaluable. And again, it's something that um, uh, we don't do uh, well enough uh, we have institutions like the Senate Steering Committee in the Senate that do some really useful work inside of Congress, uh, now being run by a, a really good woman who's uh, done some training uh, in the past. But, um, uh, you know, in general, we just don't work at this sort of thing as hard as the Democrats do. And ultimately, that shows often in our results. Yeah, so... On that point, though, right, like you just mentioned, I think a really good point about what real power looks like. And I think for a lot of people who aren't on the inside or don't work specifically inside politics or political institutions, a lot of that is drafted and sort of abstracted into theory, you know, whether that be some kind of Machiavellianism or Burnham-esque style looks at the world. Um, I mean, to someone who, you know, you just said you've got to really understand how it works. I mean, what does that look like from the inside, you know? just as someone who worked in, in the administration. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's not a lot of theory, high theory at the top levels of government. I mean, you'll get, you'll get occasional you know, differences from that. And one of the things that was really exciting about uh, J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, for example, as candidates, is that they were uh, really steeped in that type of theory. And then even guys like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, who may not be totally aligned with you know everybody who's listening to this podcast, but are generally... Uh, I think we could all agree good actors, you know, they have pretty deep backing in kind of understanding that, but that's not the median. That's not the kind of way the average politician is thinking. The average politician is thinking about what's going to get them elected next. It doesn't mean they don't have views. doesn't mean that even at times they're not sincere, but that's not kind of the battleground on which things are being thought. Um, thought. Again, that is not in any way to say that ideas don't matter, that theory doesn't matter, uh, it kind of creates the overall space in which we have these debates, and that's important. But as I am constantly telling my Claremont uh, colleagues, many of whom are, 
are much smarter and uh, better at theory than I am, you know, make it dumber, make it, you know, like make it just more applicable to the guy in the street, make it more practical. Um, and we've actually done a great job with that recently with our Center for the American Way of Life, uh, headed by my buddy Arthur Millick up in D.C. And, and Mar Arthur is a guy who's uh, spent many years in the trenches in D.C. and kind of knows how things work, but still shares our, our theoretical concerns. And so, um, you know, I think we as an institution are getting a lot better at that. Um, but again, it's it's often even when it's spoken well, it's being spoken as a second language by folks in the conservative movement. And we need to increase the number of people who speak policy as a first language, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that really had stuck out. And it was very funny, say, during the 2016 election, where The Economist magazine had published that, you know, the, the rhetoric and the vocabulary Trump uses is on a fourth grade level and trying to Im imply, oh, look at these, you know, dumb hicks or whatever. Yeah. When really you want that kind of accessibility for language, especially in a democratic system. Um, right. It was a great way that, you know, the recently fired Tucker Carlson was so effective at was speaking, you know, of these course. high concepts to ordinary people. And so one of the things that this conversation also brought to my mind, especially with your mo most recent thread, which I'll probably put up on screen in a minute here, was we know some of the problems. I mean, they're very clearly obvious in our faces. Our ideological opponents are very clear that what they want and they will do whatever it takes to get it. Um and so, the, I mean, the culture war is very important. I would never go out of my way and say that it isn't, or you have to pick one over the other. I think that they have a lot of equal value and they go hand in hand. And yeah. so where in this, you know, we, we talk about making it accessible. How can we say, look at culture war issues and effectively govern to get the culture war results that we want? Well, I think one of the things, and again, the Democrats are masterful at doing this, and a little bit of why they can do it, I want to be fair to us, is that they have certain structural advantages uh, in terms of what the media will say. And I'll get back to that in just a second. But one of the things that, that we could learn is you don't have to talk about everything you do. The Democrats are masters at, you know, putting out these, it's like these new Bud Light commercials with the, you know, country music playing and whatever is they're trying to get back their credibility from their transgender uh, commercial disaster. You know, you, um, you can just enact a bunch of policy that's really, really helpful for our side without always talking about it. And I mean, sometimes you want to pick a fight, right? Um, but, but other times you don't. And I actually had this conversation in uh, the context of this transgender stuff, which I've increasingly been spending time on and that, you know, some people were, a couple of people on the left were attacking me and saying, oh, you don't really even believe this. And I say, you know, look, in politics, um, we often talk about, do you want the argument or do you want the bill? Um, meaning, in other words, do you kind of just want to have the fight because you think the fight is uh, politically useful or do you actually want to pass legislation? And I said, in the particular case of transgenderism, I just find it so awful and demonic, especially when it involves kids, that I would happily even take a political hit and take no credit just to you know have some role in in getting rid of it um sometimes you want to have the argument but other times you can just work quietly and get the bill now the problem is the democrats can do all of this stuff and this mainstream media if they sense that talking about some of these things would be disadvantageous publicly for the democrats then they just won't talk about it um when we do it you can bet that every single democrat is going to be on the um, on the phone with their buddies in the media, and we're going to at least have to talk about it to some degree. But of course, if we had our own media that was a little more serious about investigative reporting, about doing things like that, then we would at least have a little bit more of an equal playing field than we do. Hmm. Well, that sort of springs then two more questions to my mind is, is that, you know, there, there is, there's always been the need for alternative media. And I think that the landscape for that has certainly changed since, say, the you know, Ezra Levant days of, you know, Mike Cernovich and so on and so forth. But, you know, nowadays, you're, you're, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that there isn't too much investigative reporting. And I mean, outside of when there is, it's a lot, you know, I see it as Twitter threads. I don't see it as like hit pieces or articles there. I mean, um, I think that the big question has always been that question of reach. And um, I don't think that there's a lot of coordination um, on the right with that, because, the one key difference that I've observed, and you can correct me if you have a different thought or maybe somewhere else in that opinion, is, is that 
you know, on, on the right and with say the media, especially and even alternative media platforms or commentators like myself, everyone's kind of vying for the same sort of set of eyes and set of attention. And we're all kind of butting elbows against one another, which makes it hard for us to stay on message because if you put 50 guys, conservatives, right-wingers in a room, you're going to get a hundred different opinions about, you know, five different subjects. Whereas on the left, it's very coalesced, centered and organized and, where are some of the struggles that you see in sort of getting the message out for the right? And then the second question would be for the transgender stuff. I agree with you. The fight is definitely worth it. They're going after children. They want the abolition of the family, but in different circumstances, where would it be better to pick the bill rather than the argument? Sure. Well, um, so a couple of things. First, let's talk about the, the media component and the sort of outreach component. Yeah. I mean, part of it is me hitting our side for we don't like to do investigative journalism enough. But I also have to be fair that, again, that's partially structural. Our side, the rich guys want to invest in, if they invest at all, in a legislative race where, honestly, in many cases, their dollars don't even move the needle that much. And there's a lot of data on that. Um, Rather than, hey, let's stand up an institution. We've also done a terrible job of... um, uh, you know, taking over universities, things like that. I, people, and I think you among them, have talked about the importance of patronage networks. And it's something that we're really, really bad at. In other words, somebody like me should have a million different sinecures to sort of glide into uh, when I leave a government. And that, of course, if I was on the left, I would have that. And this, I'm not, this is not something special about me. I'm just saying this for any uh, policy person who's worked at any reasonable level. Um, there would be a bunch of institutions um, that uh, you know I should be able to glide into and continue to offer my views, continue to do research papers, um, and you know I'm very thankful to Claremont for providing me uh, that forum, uh, you know, for myself. But we have limited numbers of that on the right, whereas you know every university in the country takes you know one of these Democratic guys who's senior, and uh, they can glide into some lecturing position somewhere at a university or they've got many more think tanks than we do with much more money. And so there's just a a tremendous structural inequality that the solution is both taking over institutions and funding. So there's that initial piece. Um, Well, why don't we we go to that? And remind me of the second part of your your question was- Sure, Um, the fight, well, how you called it, the argument versus mm, the bill is that I think with transgenderism and many of the culture war issues, those are just blatantly obvious that you have to fight. Those are not things that you can let slip by on the news frame. Um, But say, you know, with something that's not so in your face culture war, for instance, you know, we do have this discussion about disparate impact and sort of the more odious parts of civil rights legislation. You know, when is the bill better than the argument? Because, you know, I can already imagine, right, like we're going to get rid of disparate impact. Fantastic. That's a great policy position that needs to happen. The question then becomes, how do you go about that in reference to um, the media landscape, things like that? When is the when is the argument um, better than, say, the bill or vice versa? Sure. Well, Richard Hanania, who, you know, is a, a wonderful provocateur with uh, uh, many good opinions. Everyone's favorite stuff. contrarian. And, and some bad opinions as well. Yeah. I mean, he's actually written a fair bit about this in a civil rights context. But let me kind of also, before I do that, pivot back into some of the nerdy environmental and energy stuff that I'm aware of, because it's a classic example of times in which we could be great just having the bill. There are so many things that are in the deep bowels of dorky environmental and energy regulation that have tremendous effects often on our lives, like where you can build a house, how much it's going to cost you to build your house. Um, You know, this just um, all sorts of things about the number of forms you have to fill out to start certain types of businesses or anything, or whether you can even begin a construction project or, I mean, again, I could go on and on and on. And these are, you know, sub-elements of NEPA or the Endangered Species Act or all these things. And my view is, and I I say this, I'm like a super green guy, actually. I mean, I'm one of these these crunchy cons, as it were. Um, But all of these, pretty much all of these Democrat um, environmental bills are pretty, that were mostly done in the 70s, are disastrous and they should be gutted because they have no sense of balance of cost and benefits. But rather than try to really publicly 
legislate around all of them. We should just, between executive orders um, and laws, we should just move them. You know, we should just we just change the law and be done with it. And yes, you know, the Democrats are going to scream, so we'll have to talk about it to a degree. But we don't need to go make it a page one issue to do. When you talk about things like civil rights, again, Richard, coming back to his, you know, he's written some stuff about all sorts of things that we could just do with executive orders. And I think some of that we should talk about. For example, I think on the affirmative action stuff, I think it's very clear that public opinion is largely on our side. And so I'm not opposed to talking about it. But some of it we should just do. And it's so nerdy and in the weeds that the Democrats are almost going to have difficulty talking about it just like we did. And, uh, you know, I think that's really the right way to go. Mm. Well, I'd imagine that any, even if you took action, right, say, you know, famously, right, pen and a phone, right, with Obama, is that, you know, like you said, they'll call up their buddies. And I, I imagine that you're going to see the same problem that a lot of people do when it comes to well thought out positions on policy. Because like you said, there's a lot of stuff that is in the weeds, whether it's over environmental regulations or, I mean, the, uh, I, the, I think, what is it? The FDA has specific regulations on what, what constitutes ketchup, right? You know, yeah. uh, it's very, very like nitty gritty stuff that people probably do have, if you've researched it, have well thought out opinions on. But then all that I imagine comes out of that as well, before you can even say, well, actually, the, the Democratic bullhorn is just going to scream racist or something like that, which is something we're right. used to, I think, as, as conservatives or people on the right are aware of. But it, right. The, the thing that I also think about is permanence. You know, a lot of things that the Trump administration did do was by executive order. And yeah. a lot. And if the thing about executive orders, as we saw with how much of Obama's legacy was overturned by executive order, is that even Trump's legacy can be a lot of it overturned by executive order. So it's great that those things can be done with a pen and a phone. And I'm all for it in that respect for if it's for our side. How do you Again, it, it comes down to that question of powers. Is how do you maintain that sort of permanence? Because sure. EOs do go away. Well, well, and this is a very good point. Um, and I would say two things. First of all, this is why the Schedule F stuff, which I'll explain what that is for your for your listeners who don't know, um, was so important and why it was such a shame that we waited on it. Schedule F was essentially a proposed civil service reform, long overdue, that effectively would have taken the top of our civil service, which is a policy making body functionally, if you actually interact with these people, you realize that, and turn them into at will employees effectively, rather than employees that had protections. And of course, what that allows you to do is fire the ones who are trying to undermine you. And let me assure you that as a Republican, and I'm not saying this is true of all of them, I mean, you have a few who are on your side, you have a lot who just kind of want to do a good job uh, as they see it, not necessarily helpful, but, um, you know, you can work with them. Uh, and then you've got some who are actively trying to undermine you, which is, of course, completely anti-democratic, but that's the system we live in. If you can get rid of some of those guys, it's a kill the chicken to scare the monkey type thing, where if I could get rid of the worst actors at Interior when I was there in the bureaucracy, other people would have basically fallen in line. So that would have had two effects. One is I could have brought in my own guys. Secondly, it would have scared the rest of the bureaucracy into actually trying to do things that serviced our agenda, which is what they are supposed to do. Again, I mean, if, if some leftist happens to be listening to this, they'll be like, aha, you know, this is their, you know, secret, uh, you know, forum to, you know, have a coup. Not at all. This is how democracy or a democratic republic is supposed to work. Somebody wins and they control the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy within the confines of law, um, you know, adheres to their wishes. But of course, that's not really how things work for us. The bureaucracy helps the Democrats and it hurts uh, us. Um, so I think you have to do things like that. And in fact, you know, I was talking with a very sharp uh, friend of mine who spent a fair bit of time in the policy trenches and he was pointing to another structural disadvantage we have, which is because all of these bureaucrats are liberals and we don't really address that issue, um, uh, what can happen a lot of times is if I were to tell the bureaucracy to do a certain thing in a certain way, depending on how I did it, I could be opening myself up to legal challenge or legal jeopardy or, or any other thing. Whereas a liberal doesn't need to tell the bureaucracy what they want done. The bureaucracy just does it anyway. And so they can avoid that whole 
legal conundrum. Then to get back to your original point or question about kind of the whole issue of executive orders, it's not permanent. It's not perfect. Obviously, changing laws is, is the ideal thing to do. But what it at least does is it creates something as a contested space. So the people, and that matters both for the debate, because all of a sudden this thing that wasn't, you know, was just kind of, oh, affirmative action is a default. Now all of a sudden, you know, people are talking about it. And maybe when the good guys are in government, they're kind of going our way and maybe they're helping us, some of the people affected by these regulations. And it also creates an intellectually contested space where, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, we can begin to talk about these issues in a more deep and structured way. And so I think even though it's not a permanent solution, you can accomplish quite a lot by putting stuff back on the field of play. So at least we're winning some of the time. At least our border is not being overrun all the time, right? Like this matters. I would have loved to have had a good immigration law, but you know, Trump, you know, for all the, the things that he did come up short on immigration, you know, a hell of a lot better than where we are right now. So Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, one of the things I tell people is that the most honest, like, five minutes of congressional discussion came during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, where I think it was then-Senator Jeff Flake saying that, like, the Supreme Court of the United States is the last avenue for Americans to have politics is because everything gets tied up to the bureaucracy because Congress doesn't do its job. And I think that that was just um, a rare moment of honesty out of the United States uh, Senate, which was just lovely to see. Um, right. And, and I, I do agree that, you know, even if you, the, the civil service is absolutely important in respects to how much things get stopped. I mean, we can look at our friends across the pond and we saw with Brexit, how much of the home office work, you know, tooth and nail to ensure that it did not happen. That's why it took three some odd years to finally leave the European Union. Um, and it really did set an example for the rest of the Eurosceptic right in the EU to say like, you'll you'll be like the UK if, you know, you try and leave. Um, and I, I think for this conversation, it, it does bring up an interesting point about patronage and training people to look at policy in a way that isn't just, uh, you know, hashtag build the wall. I'm all for the wall getting 10 feet yeah. higher. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, right, we do need people that can look at those things and do it. And, you know, I see the same problem with patronage. Um, and on your side, as I do as like a commentary person, you know, we're all scrambling for sort of middle class, upper middle class donors to help provide money and support for things that have disposable income in the same way that you want to go to wealthy, politically aligned people to do so. But a lot of that money I see gets thrown at things that are like money pits. You know, I I, I see like it, it, it reminds me of like Karl Rove's famous meltdown during the 2012 election. He's like, he's got all the polls that say like he's got it. But most of the polling data he's using are like phone calls and uh, mailers, not, you know, texting, yeah. social media, etc. Uh, where do you see the future of, you know, policy wonking, so to speak, uh, on the right? Or, or do you see steps being made in a positive direction to expand patronage, to expand um, our ability to actually channel power into legislative change? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things, and I want to go back to the first comment you said first, because I thought it was really important, this Jeff Flake comment, because it's it's very, it's critical, I think, to understand this. A lot of the power flows to the bureaucracy, and there are various nefarious reasons for that. But there's also, and this is, you know, Black Pill incoming here, it's also partially because the lawmakers want it that way, because then they don't have to be politically accountable for making some difficult decisions. They can just say, oh, let the agency do it. Um, now, again, some of this power, Congress actually doesn't want to cede and the bureaucracy just takes it anyway. But a lot of it is intentionally given to the bureaucracy. And that's why it's so important whether, you know, who controls the bureaucracy. To get then to your, your kind of second part of your question is sort of where this lives institutionally. I mean, this, I think, has been a real strength of DeSantis in now it's hard, right? And he's just trying to take over a new college in Florida. But he's, you know, he's made real steps. He took real steps to fire Soros prosecutors. I mean, he's created facts on the ground. And I think that is, again, a thing that is um, <clears throat> incredibly important. Something that I've urged us in 2025 is, you know, when we have the Schedule F in place, when we start um, figuring out 
you know, okay, we can get rid of folks. We need to have our lists of folks we want to get rid of, and we need to create facts on the ground so that if they're arguing as they will and suing us and saying this is illegitimate, they're doing it from their desk sitting in a park in Washington, D.C. somewhere, not their desk sitting in the Department of the Interior where, you know, we're having. And so you need to create facts. You need to create realities. Um, you need to actually act and then have a legal process play out around that. And of course, we should create a legal fr framework for acting correctly. I'm not suggesting we should be acting extra legally, but there is there's kind of execution steps that are involved here that we just, sometimes you just need to do things um, rather than kind of ask permission to kind of go do it and then have a, a two-year fight with a liberal judge about it. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'd imagine that that'll be the big thing that people are looking forward to seeing is, is that but how do you bypass the, like, the legal fights, right? And I mean, we've already seen quite a few of that play out. I know that there are some cases that people are trying to sue in Florida over trying to take over. Again, it's, it's one college. And I, I do think that that should show as an example to anyone that's sort of interested in like, well, how do you take over an institution? Um, you, that's the kind of fight that you're going to be looking towards. And that's just like a college, right? And firing right. prosecutors. like, And this is why I've told people a lot that there's a lot that you can do on the local level and especially if you do have a cogent and cohesive like political block like you know for all the talk of 2024 which i don't want to like really get into for the sake of this conversation desantis at home whoever he's got on his team kind of knows what they're doing and you yeah. you, you need to recruit competency is what of, really of sticks out um of course. And, and where do we where do we look for competency? Where where yeah. do you see that happening? Because you know we do see some players. You know the Center for American Renewal. Um, what you guys are doing over at the Claremont Institute. Who are the faces, names, or institutions that you know ordinary American conservatives or people on the right should be looking at to maybe influence or get interested or involved in to see what yeah. difference they can make at a local level? Sure. Well, I think you know this is one strength rather than kind of kind of say holistically, because I think it's so idiosyncratic by state. I, I live in a state with, and I say this very fondly, very amateur politics for the most part. Our legislature meets three months every two years, where I say, I'm in, so I'm in Montana, we're a very large geographic state with a very small population of just a little bit over a million. And so it's very easy to sort of move levers here and there just as an ordinary citizen. <clears throat> That's very attractive. It's very easy to get access to legislators. I actually think that even in most states, with the exception of weird states like California, where the legislative districts are even bigger than the congressional districts, it's pretty easy to get uh, in touch with a state legislator and make a difference there. Um, where I think uh, things can can really move the ball forward is in in just kind of having a um, a degree of seriousness about understanding these bills, how they're made. Um, <coughs> Um, I, I would say Heritage actually has done uh, a really exciting work. They're spearheading an, or, uh, um, an initiative that I'm part of called Project 2025, um, which is sort of a transition project. Heritage has also, <clears throat> excuse me, gotten much better ideologically among its, uh, its new leadership. But one of the things they're doing is really explicitly, as they build out a personnel file for 2025, looking at who we can go to who is not in Washington. Because I think as soon as you just reach into the beltway, you have problems um, because that self-selects for a certain type of person. And it's not that we don't have any good conservatives in the beltway, we absolutely do. But more conservatives live in places like Montana. Um, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so, you know, that's a good place to be looking and you wanna look for organizations that are really trying to find that talent in state government, in local government and say, hey, why don't you come to DC for a couple of years? Um, and I think also, you know, this is a sort of a narrow technical thing, but maybe that's the subject of this conversation. Um, doing things so that people have a little bit more flexibility in terms of when they need to be in the office as a political, um, not suggesting people shouldn't be in the office because it's really important at a certain level to be, but for somebody like me in Montana, who is going to keep my family in Montana? If I just had to be in the office three or four days a week, or at least four days someday, versus um, having to be there every week, five days a week, 
that's much easier for me to justify in terms of a family investment of like, hey, I can keep my family, I can keep my family life, there's going to be a certain pain threshold, but I could maybe stick around for the entire administration, because it's just not totally incompatible with me having a life um, outside of my work. Um, that again, will you put in that type of structure, and you'll get more people who are not just beltway type folks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a, a friend of the show, Patrick Casey, was saying he lives in D.C. There's plenty of, you know, base people around, but they often come and go, you know, not a huge reserve supply on demand. And I, I do think that, you know, looking towards, you know, the states that many people just call the middle or flyover, I think would be very important because um, I remember prior to the 2016 election, there was a, you know, that Rick Perry was being interviewed about, you know, two, 2016 if he was going to run. And he had, was talking, and the conversation came up about Chris Christie, of all people. And he had said, you know, as a Republican in New Jersey, like a Republican in Texas. And I've always thought about that being a very good question, because, you know, you can look at, say, someone like Larry Hogan in Maryland, and then I look at Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis, and it's just like, yeah, geographics do play a huge role with how someone's going to govern based upon a party line. And I, I think that that is a good idea that people need to be looking towards you know, the people that actually vote for Trump or the people that will vote for DeSantis or whoever, like you need, if you're going to have these people be heard in government or, or, or have policy for them, they should probably be participating to some degree on that level. So I, I think that that's a, a good point that you make is about reaching outside the beltway. Um, I was just talking with, uh, you know, Logan Hall over at Newfound and yesterday we had lunch and he was telling me like, you know, they're, they, they come and go, or and then some of them are just there to make money and maybe not govern as much. And so sure. uh, I, I think that that's definitely a good position to have is to look into the geographic depths of the country. Um, and so, like, again, I think that this comes back to a, a good point that we were talking about earlier about sort of investigating, because, you know, we as much as the word weaponized autism gets thrown around, like, it's good to do research and backgrounds on people, but you know, it also helps to do background and research on the law or what decisions do X, Y, and Z and how that affects the legal structure of the country. Um, you know, where do you see that being important? Because I, I look at your thread on Twitter and I'm going to just share it on screen for a second here because it's a great, great thread. Um, I go, yep. Uh, and you just break down this entire person's background. And I mean, this stuff is important for the obvious reasons, right? Like, you know, Mr. Zephyr's got this long history. You know, you've talked about the video game connection and things like that. All the basic points that anyone should know when it comes to how this stuff works. Um, you know, where should one start with, say, policy or legal or things like that? Because, I mean, I can look up, you know, on, on Justica and start doing legal research. But where would you suggest as an outside, you know, someone who's worked in government, what would you suggest to ordinary people where should they start looking to understand, you know, where the bureaucracy has the power it does? Wow. Uh, that's a hard question. So I may sidestep it slightly and, sure. uh, and we could go back to it. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think I can answer it indirectly or at least how I, I would go about it. Cause I think you know, that's, it's almost an existential question to talk about how the bureaucracy, it's like a Curtis Yarvin question exercises power. <laughs> right. Um, but but like at a more nuts and bolts level, and I think this is important, for example, for this thread to talk about media, um, <clears throat> a first source, not my only source, despite what some people were screaming about on Twitter, um, I, I, everything was multi-sourced in that piece. But a first place I went to uh, to get some of the information for this piece was Kiwi Farms, which was a site I was not really familiar with, but I suppose that uh, <laughs> perhaps a number of your more autistic uh, folks were. Uh, in, in this chat. I, I love the mental image of, of you or anyone who's worked in Washington going on Kiwi Farms for research. This is how it's done, people. <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing, right? So there's a bunch of stuff on there. I don't know the whole side. I was only paying attention to, you know, the particular thread that was 8,000 posts that I was interested in. Um, there were a lot of um, things on that thread that I would not associate myself with that I would consider mean, trollish, kind of obnoxious, um, maybe sharing information that I think should not be shared and are, uh, you know, reasonably um, expected to be private. So, you know, having uh, done all that throat clearing and disclaiming, you know, what else was there was a ton of great investigative reporting or what we used to call investigative reporting that was generally sourced, that pointed to 
resources that I then later consulted that were outside of Kiwi Farms on totally respectable places and was documented. Um, and it was weird because who was being done it? It was all these autistic internet people who were doing it for free. Um, and the difference was there were actual facts. You know, it wasn't just, I don't like transgenderism, but like, look at all the crazy deviant stuff this guy has done. And oh, by the way, here's, you know, his divorce records. Now I didn't put all that in there because again, my, um, my goal was not to do a character uh, attack on any of these people. It was simply to show that these people were not really who they were representing them to be. And they had a number of uh, kind of interests and backgrounds that would be considered well outside the mainstream. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I think that also applies to our media. Uh, Fox is taking a lot of hits right now. And I think totally justifiably for uh, kind of their disgraceful proxy war against Tucker. I had a tweet just before I came on um, that said a lot of that is because they're in New York City. And you're just never going to really have, in my opinion, a durably conservative organization, uh, media organization based out of New York City. So you have to look at a Nashville or a Dallas or somewhere like that. And in places like that, even though, yes, I know, as a couple of my commentators pointed out, the cities themselves are not necessarily that conservative. But if you look, say, at Nashville, every single county around the city of Nashville is somewhere between solidly red and deep red. And the state is red. And so you can attract red-minded people who might work in the city, but they live in their nice Republican suburb, and you can sustain a conservative organization. So I'd say that's the media piece. And on the policy piece, again, I think it's so idiosyncratic. You've just got to call up a legislator. And in many cases at the state or local level, um, it's incredible the amount of power you can get by uh, just having, um, you know, just caring a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that that's a very good point is, is that e even where I live, right, like the a lot of the counties around the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex are very solidly red. And the exurbs or the suburbs are always a good place to look to because those people probably do travel to the city to work. I know plenty that do who are who are attorneys that work in Dallas. I know a guy that makes a lengthy journey to, to work for inside as a lawyer at the Zion Natural Gas and Oil Building, right? Like those things are, are definitely a good way to look at where you can find quality candidates and yeah your, your tweet about that a core problem of any conservative organization you know is you can't expect it to say conservatives right that's like robert conquest laws is that sure. you know any right-wing organization or conservative organization will inevitably turn liberal um and I, I think that geography will be a good way to have a reserve of people that if they notice that things are moving in a leftward direction someone could be like okay we can bring people you know, say outside of, you know, say like in Denton or something like that, right? Like they could bring people north of Dallas in to help, you know, replenish that conservative reserve. Um, so, I, I mean, again, like these are all very important points. And I, maybe this can be a good way to, to go back towards that more existential question would be in respects to how we research these things, how we understand law works, you, you had mentioned a really interesting point earlier, and I kind of want to dig back at it, was that you had said there are some things that Congress doesn't want to lose in terms of power, but the bureaucracy takes it anyway. What, what are some examples of that? Where, where is the bureaucracy just this power-hungry, ravenous machine that's you know stealing power from Congress? Well, civil rights law is one of the most notorious examples to me of this, and a really important one, in which... If you look at it and go back and look at the legislative debates around the Civil Rights Act, they were really clear. I mean, they could they were they were obnoxiously overly clear that something like disparate impact should not be allowed to happen, that this was, you know, that quotas weren't in, that that this type of reasoning was not going to be acceptable. They couldn't have been much more clear. And yet the bureaucracy over time just kind of did it anyway. And we haven't been smart enough to flip that around. And so it's, it's shocking the amount. You see this with some of the environmental policy acts as well, where there were very clear things that were put in saying, you know, we want to do this with this law or do not interpret this law to mean this. And then you look 10 years later and the law has been interpreted to mean just that. And even if a conservative organization is smart enough to then challenge that interpretation in court, if they get the wrong judge, then it doesn't go anywhere. And even if they get the right judge, ultimately maybe there's later there's a long judge, wrong the judge, and 
the Supreme Court only has uh, so much bandwidth, and so it just doesn't get taken up. It's it's just not a sustainable way, and so that's why actually changing the content of who is in the bureaucracy is really important. Yeah, I mean, you see this as well with the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, you you look at some of the earliest cases with Griswold v. Connecticut. You know, I think it was Justice Black that had raised the question in his dissent. Or no, it was oral argumentation, if I remember correctly, where he was just like this, you know, this privacy idea that we're using for contraception, I feel may pave the way for legalizing abortion somewhere down the future. The justices at the time said, no, of course not. But as we saw that sort of in this privacy right that had been invented, right, it started with contraception in a domicile, married couples to, you know, large abortion in the span of 10 years from 1963 to 1973. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that it really is about personnel. Um, And so, you know, it kind of goes back to that institutional question because we just talked about a few of them earlier. Um, for people that want to get involved, what would you suggest? Because there is this big conversation now about sort of credentialism, how the university systems, how operate are, are we looking for people or, and by we, I mean, these institutions, are they looking for people that are more of what you would expect traditionally of these guys that, you know, did, you know, mock trial in college and have a law degree or, or is there this diversification of people with different backgrounds and so on? Well, one thing I would say is if you want to have one way to have an effect is join the government. And I realize that that's like a little painful, especially for uh, some of our more traditional, quote unquote, small government conservatives. But, you know, I think we're intellectually we are beginning to get out of that cul-de-sac, which is great. And understanding that power is actually good to use. Um, and uh, but we now need to instrumentalize that in we need to be in the bureaucracy. And I'll just, again, give you an example from Interior. We did have a few folks, not a lot, but a few folks in that bureaucracy who were kind of known to be at least somewhat conservative, um, some, you know, maybe one or two even very conservative. When we got in, we elevated those guys <laughs> to senior positions within the bureaucracy because we knew we could trust them to carry out our lawful agenda, which is appropriate. Um, and again, if there are situations, and I have this with a couple of friends in the diplomatic corps who I'm encouraging to kind of go build out networks, I would love to have as a political appointee, a built-in set of 50 guys in the bureaucracy who are kind of waiting their time, who I can come in and say, you know, hey, like, I'm going to help you a lot. I'm going to build your career and do that. But But we need to have those people there. So there's no substitute in terms of influencing the government or sometimes just joining the government. And I think for some greater subset of people than we have now, they should uh, grin and bear it and see if they can do that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of maybe on the other side of the fence, you know, there's a lot of concern about entryism as they like to say, you know, because again, grinning and bear it, you know, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Obviously you need the experience if you want to have the know-how to, to rule or to do something even locally because, you know, I, I don't know how anyone doesn't look at Washington and, and tries to approach that, you know, like Don Quixote in some respects. But uh, I, I think that no, that is a valid point. But there's some that would say that like that entry isn't like, what are you doing other than just serving the Leviathan? You know, um, yeah, I, a lot of people would feel that, you know, entryism or, or joining the government, joining the institution, you're just being a part of like the power structure rather than, you know, doing anything to fight back against it. Right. Well, if you want to replace the power structure, I mean, this is kind of a Yarvin argument, right? Like if you want to replace the power structure in one fell swoop, God bless you. You know, like I encourage you to go out and do that. And honestly, maybe if you're outside agitating and kind of making that look like it's a, a reasonable thing and the left again is expert at this, um, that might make my life easier inside government i'm like oh you know you've got me and we could either do this nice legislative process or you got those whoa crazy guys you know outside the building yelling and you know burning flag pride flags or whatever and uh you know so it's either we can kind of reason together or you can take your chances with those guys so i'm not making a judgment call for individual people about what they should do i'm certainly sensitive to questions of entryism I'm sensitive to questions of being co-opted, even if you go in with very sincere um, motives. 
But I do think, and I think especially if we were to get a Schedule F type reform where we could actually have our own civil servants who work for the good guys over time, mm -hmm. um, that there are plenty of um, avenues for a genuinely right-leaning person to uh, make a difference in the bureaucracy. The other thing I think we should do, of course, is to greatly expand the number of political appointees that we have. This is one of the dumbest things that Republicans have done is to try, you know, the Trump administration didn't even fill a lot of the political slots that they had. We also make it really, really difficult. I mean, I went through months and months of background checks despite having a very, very boring background, um, you know, to, uh, to make it uh, very difficult for politicals to get in. And again, that's a very asymmetric, um, problem because for the left, if their politicals don't get in, somebody doesn't get something on their resume or they don't get their something on their resume as quickly. The bureaucracy sort of does what it does. When our politicals don't get in, the left is still running things. And that happened at way too many agencies in the last administration for way too long. So I think in addition to these bureaucratic flexibility things, we need to dramatically increase the number of political appointees in these agencies, that's something that we've done a little bit of in Montana. We didn't go quite as aggressively as I'd, I'd like, but we have addressed that. And I think it's it's really important to say, and when I say political, I shouldn't even use that term. That's like kind of, it's democratically accountable appointees, i.e. the political appointees, or the unaccountable non-democratic bureaucracy. And I think that we should in, uh, select as a government and as a country for having democratically accountable appointees in government. I think that's the right way to do things. And those are the people who should be running the show, whether it's when their guys are running things or when our guys are running things. Mm. Yeah, I think that that raises an interesting question because you had mentioned that there's that small government mindset that I think still exists with a lot of the older um, generations of, of the GOP, sort of that old style fusionism you know, how much of that kind of ideological hold is there on this situation? Because I, I, I see this on my timeline all the time, especially with the more well-known political, you know, guys that work in institutions or have worked in government before, is this the debate about trying to, like, get past Trumpism or, you know, not using state power. You know, I don't think we can return to small government. I, I think that that era is over or that it never... I it Actually, I'll push back on that on myself here. I don't think that the era of small government is over. I just think that the word small government in terms of, you know, cutting some regulations there or tax there doesn't ever, or it never has really gotten to the issue of power, you know, because yeah. like you can cut this, but if that thing is good to say reward political allies or to help your own people in a nominally democratic system, I don't want to cut tools that would be used to help my people, like that selectorate that we would use. And so how is that debate going from your perspective? Are, are we moving towards a new synthesis? Uh, are the are the Trump guys or your Schedule F position, is that the winning position do you see? Or are there arguments being raised by, say, that quote-unquote old guard that are, are worth addressing? I hope so. And I, I don't want to dismiss the arguments of the old guard. Um, and, and that's one of the things. Um, we have zombie Reaganism. I think it's quite correctly criticized. There's also zombie criticize everything about Reagan. Okay, I'm a little bit of an older guy perhaps than I look, or maybe not, but I was around when Reagan was president and he had a different set of issues that he was trying to address when he was president. Um, you can argue with hindsight, well, he should have done X or Y, but trust me, you know, for the, the set of issues he was facing, I think he did you know, a pretty good job with what he had. It turned out to ultimately be insufficient for where we um, we needed to go. And we can do <laughs> Monday morning quarterbacking on that, or we can suggest that uh, maybe the system was just kind of doomed to wind up at this point. But as I always tell people, you know, on the sort of further right who kind of get too critical of the small government folks, there's a reason why Pat Buchanan was Ronald Reagan's press secretary for two years, and you don't see Pat Buchanan, uh, you know, going <laughs> taking shots at Reagan, okay? I mean, History belongs to itself, and it's dangerous to kind of look at where we are right now, where I think small government is not really the relevant thing of the day, and in fact is a structural trap for us, and say, well, then everything that you know Reagan was doing in 1980 or all these concerns that these older people had were, were wrong. It just turned out that 
um, where we wound up, uh, the country has become so fractured, largely in my view, uh, due to kind of mass immigration, importing just totally different American people. Um, that uh, although that's that's not the only thing, but it's uh, to me, it's it's probably the primary thing. Um, that we can't have that shared set of experiences that mean that we could kind of get together and that our side, you know, is a little bit more reluctant to use government power for good reasons. Um, we're now kind of in a Hobbesian struggle of all against all, and we just need to realize that. And we do have some old guard folks who are unfortunately um, an impediment to that. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to judge them because I understand, even though I'm a little younger than most of them, where they're coming from. But, uh, you know, that time has passed, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I think we saw that more recently. There was, uh, it was on Fox a few days ago about just sort of the issue again, the most prominent one that is in the news 24-7 these days is the transgender issue, is that, you know, 76% of Republicans that they polled said, you know, um, this has gone way too far, whereas like 76% of Democrats says, you know, we haven't gone far enough. And, you know, there's just a, and this was even before Trump's time where, you know, even mainstream sort of liberal publications were talking about the growing political divide in the country. And I do agree, yes, that immigration has played probably the largest role in doing that because there's no common frame of reference. I mean, sports used to be the one place where that wasn't the case. And now it's been politicized and that, you know, there's, there is no really retreat to the hinterlands in this respect, right? Because that's still going to be there for you. And I, I always think of that Orrin McIntyre tweet of, you know, the side that wants to be left alone will lose to the side that wants to win. And I think that there needs to be a drive to win. And if that means, you know, gutting the bureaucracy with Schedule F and taking a blow to the deep state, as people like to say, that needs to be part of it. And so I, I think that does leave probably my last question for the hour, because there were a few people that sent super chats for questions, was that you talk about, for instance, your project 2025. My brain is immediately thinking about, well, that implies that we get some kind of victory in 2024. Um, you know, is there, do you see a pathway to that with sort of ballot harvesting and yeah. the, 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 the still the blatant, you know, bypassing of the democratic legislative process we saw by some judges and governors in 2020? Yeah. Um, you know, do, is there something on the books for that? Is there a way that we yeah. can tell people that, hey, there is some security in our election still? Or, yeah. um, you know, what, what do we have there? This is something where I just think that my my friends, you know, on, on our area of the right uh, are just way too black pilled. Um, mm. And I understand why. I mean, look, I wrote I, I don't believe any of the Dominion stuff per se, although I'm sure some of your listeners would argue with that. But I wrote I wrote a piece. The first piece I wrote when I got out of the administration was all the ways in which this election was stolen. OK, which didn't have to do with ballots per se, but it had to do with ballot harvesting, with censorship of media stories, et cetera. So it's not that I am naive about what the Democrats do, or that I'm suggesting that everything is hunky-dory. I'm just suggesting, even with all of that, and with a very controversial candidate, we still almost pulled it off. And the notion that the Democrats can just, you know, immediately add, without us having any way to fight back, you know, seven points to where they um, would get from a fair election and then automatically win, I just don't think that's accurate. I think it is absolutely possible to uh, elect one of our guys in 2024. Uh, I actually think, uh, you know, contrary to a few folks on the right, I think Trump is absolutely electable. I think they will go after him. I mean, they're going to go after any of our guys. I think they will go after Trump with a particular vehemence and use every trick in the book against Trump, but it still might not be sufficient. I mean, Biden is a horrible candidate whose senility can only be hid even by the regime media for so long. And you see that in polling data about Biden. So, I do not accept that, um, although I absolutely think we do need to um, discuss these things, I absolutely do think the 2020 election was stolen and have have said so and written so. I don't think that this is, you know, the democratic process is some impossible thing now just because um, the the big D Democrat Party has uh, kind of done some machinations to tilt the, the tables in their direction. DeSantis in Florida in 2022 being a dramatic example of what it looks like when you have somebody who's smart and paying attention to structure and paying attention to voter registration can do when the democratic party does not want them to do it win by 19 points. Yeah. And I I think that what he had done alongside his predecessor, sort of looking at um, 
what was it that Broward County, you know, that rather infamous one about how, how they're still counting days after an election, right? I think that those yeah. are the things that people obviously need to target and to put the will of the executive on. And that doesn't apply just to Florida. I mean, that this applies as well to to Texas. I mean, I wish and I I pray that one day like Governor Abbott would, you know, look at uh Travis County in Austin and just be like, okay, guys, like enough is enough, right? Um yeah. Uh, and that that's the it's the important part that people need to to realize is that but, that stuff matters and they, but they we can't, can't throw we can it do out. stuff and maybe this is my final chat uh, comment pre super chats is there's a sense and this is happening with the Zoe Zephyr stuff in Montana where everybody's like oh you made her into a martyr no that's the their move we get to make a move too um, everybody always assumes that if the Democrats do some slimy underhanded and questionably illegal move that and the media somehow celebrates them, that all we can do is throw up our hands. No, we get to make moves on the chessboard as well. And that's mm -hmm. the mentality that we need to have. It's not just they do stuff and we throw up our hands and you know get really angry at them. We can actually move things and win if we want to. Yeah, I'm all for making demons while they make uh, <clears throat> martyrs out of people in that respect. Because, yeah. you know, I, I can't, I, I read your thread and I saw how fast it blew up. And I was like, yeah, like this person just, uh, you know, that old style bit of that you can excise a demon by naming it, right? And that was a pretty good way of highlighting it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so uh, we'll, we'll we'll get on to the Super Chats. There were a few questions that were asked that I, I think are rather important. Um, Patrick Casey, a friend of the show and, you know, who lives in D.C., you know, we've talked about Yarvin before when, with you coming on. So he says, uh, Yarvin's critique of Schedule F was that a Republican president would just fire a few and they'd end up with book deals and on TV and all that jazz. It would further fuel the left and accomplish nothing. Is that too cynical? Yes. So I love Yarvin. I've read Yarvin, uh, you know, when some of your listeners were probably in elementary school or middle school, depending on how young they were. So, you know, I, I go way back with Curtis, no Curtis personally. Um, it's not that I think Patrick's question is crazy. Um, I think he is a very acute analyst of power, but I think he's also sometimes too blackbilled. Um, and, you know, similarly, I don't think that, you know, we're going to wind up in monarchy. Um, but, uh, it'll depend, right? Like there will be some Republican president is going to fire a few. They'll wind up with book deals and on TV. Um, that will fuel the left. That is unquestionably something that will happen. But if we've chosen the right people, we can also take power, real power doing that. Now, if you don't believe that, then, you know, we shouldn't be involved in this conversation at all. You know, you should just be stockpiling weapons somewhere. I am not uh, suggesting this, by the way. I mean, well, I do suggest you stockpile weapons, but not for the purposes of having an insurrection against the government. But, I mean, if you kind of feel like there's no moves on the chessboard that we can make, well, then, uh, you know, I guess that's where you are. And the conversation we've been having is is irrelevant. But I do think that there are moves that we can make. And, yes, we are going to create their little set of media martyrs. But you know what we can also do? If we fire 5,000 of them, they're not going to be able to have 5,000 media martyrs because you just flood the zone, right? So there's going to be a lot of people who we can get rid of who there's just not enough space and oxygen in the media ecosystem to be paid attention to. So I think it would be a huge mistake, which is maybe implicit on my, my follow-up to Patrick, because mm -hmm. I think it's a very good question. If we just pick a few, that's a mistake. We need to pick a few thousand and then, you know, they'll make martyrs of a few and the rest yeah. will just be gone. I, I do think that Yarvin's got a point that, yeah, you'll feel fire some and they might, you might reveal the next David French of the world, right? You know, someone that feels like it's gone too far and that, you know, the, here's the conservative case for why or yeah. some other progress. Like that's bound to happen. I think it's a guarantee. That's just how the the cycle works is that people want to be loved by the, the media and by the left so much that principles do not matter to them. And that's sort of the spinelessness of David French. I don't have a problem saying that at all. Um, but however, I think the other benefit is, and what we've also seen sort of as this interesting silver lining to Tucker Carlson's firing is that I can't really think of too many people in the mainstream press that have that media staying power. I mean, you still have to deal with a younger electorate. Yes. Old people are still voting, but I mean, the, they're not going to be there forever. It's just how life works. And that, you know, the average age of a Fox News viewer is like 68 and a half years, and they're all mid-60s for MSNBC and CNN and the rest. Then you have everything and their mother from 
you know, the Dispatch, the Bulwark, all these other right-winging blogs, Revolver, The Blaze, you know, Newsmax, it's not as centralized as it used to be. So yeah, they can go on a book circuit or the podcast talk or the live stream bit. Maybe, you know, we get to interview some of the new people that come on in, like, which would be great. So I, I don't know if it'll be nearly as disastrous as it is, because what has the last few years shown us with like book deals and publishing is that it's all incredibly fake and gay. You know, I have friends that have self-published their books that make more than the the top sellers at Penguin Publishing. So sure. I, I think that it's not going to be nearly as as bad as, as what people say. So those are important things to, to, to keep in mind. Um, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Corbin for $5 just sends a super sticker. But thank you, Corbin. Your support is always appreciated. Let me try and scroll down. Uh, and then Patrick just replies with another $10. Says, great stuff. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to go check uh, Entropy real quick, see if there's anybody there for that kind of super chat. And if not, nope. Um, but uh, once again, Jeremy, thank you for for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, is there anything that you're currently working on that you would like people to see? I have your website and your Twitter account linked down below in the description. But are there any projects that you want um, people to pay attention to or people that want to know about you know, how to get involved? Where would you point them to? Yeah, well, I mentioned Project 2025, and they should check that out. It's not a Claremont project, but we are involved in it, and it's a kind of conservative clearinghouse. And if you want to be practically involved, I think uh, poking around that and seeing what you can do is great. I would always encourage folks to uh, support the work that my my friends do at the Claremont Institute. I think that uh, we have been pretty unique in uh, kind of attacking the regime in some core ways that I think no other uh, conservative think tank of any sort of stature has really gone after them. So I think that's, uh, you know, uh, we, we always appreciate the uh, support and allows us to do more. We've expanded our profile quite a bit in the last few years, thanks to the generosity of, of many folks. Um, I'm working on this book. Uh, again, we didn't really get into that subject on the kind of rise of institutionalized anti-white racism and discrimination uh, in this country. Uh, it's kind of an interesting subject. It won't be out for till next year, but uh, certainly encourage folks to uh, watch that uh, or, or buy that book when it comes out. Um, and, and maybe I can beat the uh, self-publishers uh, uh, out there in an odd world in terms of the, the revenues we can bring in. But I do think there'll be a lot of interest in that. But but yeah, no, uh, just uh, stay involved and always enjoy these uh, chats, always enjoy getting a chance to kind of talk about these issues um, in a deep way with, with new media folks such as yourself, who I think are increasingly... Uh, occupying and bringing in a really important, uh, smart, well-informed audience uh, that we can talk to and and have these discussions. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I will be live later this week. Um, tomorrow I'm recording with uh, CJ Engel over with Chronicles Magazine. So it's been a very busy week. I also had the great chance to talk with New Founding yesterday. Uh, I had the great chance to meet Andrew Isker um, over from Gab and his own projects with Contramundo. So uh, plenty of stuff that are coming down the works and the pipeline for you all. Um, and by all means, if you want to see more of this kind of stuff, the support that you provide by Super Chat and Subscribe Star is always thankful. Um, you know, patronage matters. So you guys are, are making sure that that happens. And uh, we'll see you all next time. So take care, everyone.